Hey, everybody. Before we start this episode, Scott and I have to tell you about our corporate overlords at Fangoria, the oldest and most trusted name in genre publishing. The tradition is still going strong these days, and if you're a horror fan, you owe it to yourself to subscribe to their print magazine filled with a diverse roster of talented writers, and sometimes me and Scott, too. Uh, deep dives into horror classics, insights into the newest scary projects on the horizons, all the gory makeup photos you can stomach, and so much more. And all that is only available in print form. And since we're in the Fangoria family, they've offered KingCast listeners a nice discount where they can sign up. Scott, tell them the details. This is very easy, folks. You're going to go to Fangoria.com. You know what a, a web address bar looks like. Plug that in there. And then you're going to sign up for an annual subscription. But before you're done checking out, plug in the code KingCast to get 25% off the cost of an annual subscription to the magazine. You will not regret it. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! Sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We have a very interesting show for you today. Our guest is, well, look, most of the people that appear on this show are comedians or actors or actresses or filmmakers. This is our first editor that we've ever had on the show. And I think it's important that we shed a little light on these guys because for my money, editors are the unsung heroes of all these movies that we love. And our guest today is an editor who's worked on some of your favorite movies. Boogie Nights, Insomnia, Punch Drunk Love, both chapters of Kill Bill, Django Unchained, Fast Five, Guardians of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and last but certainly not least, last year's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is for my money, Tarantino's actual masterpiece. Next year, you'll see his work in James Gunn's highly anticipated The Suicide Squad. Today, he's on the KingCast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Fred Raskin. Fred, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It is really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh, no, no, no problem at all. Um, you should have slipped like some really bizarre thing in the middle of it, like anal green tomatoes. Four. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I like how I went, I went to some weird porn title and you went to the old, old people movie. Yeah, well, I'm trying to keep this PG, Eric. You know, this is a family <laughs> show. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, I know. I know you. You you shy away from the F-bombs. Eric, do you know about the weird connection that Fred and I have? Have I told you about that? Uh, no idea. This is all new to me. Okay. So this is a real like small world after all bit of bullshit. But years ago, like when I was in high school, I went to military school for high school. My senior year, my English teacher was this guy named Dr. Robert Zavzlovsky, total ball breaker of a teacher, but also probably the best teacher I ever had. He was the only teacher I ever had who was like influential in, in how I approach writing or reading or so many things. This, this guy was, um, I can't say that I enjoyed being in his class and I was frequently uh, complaining about it, but he made a lasting impression on me. And then I ended up, you know, staying in touch with this guy for some years afterwards. So like in the early 2000s or so, like, I guess this would have been 2003, 2004, he hit me up on Facebook and was like, Hey, I need to introduce you to this, uh, this student of mine. He likes, he likes movies too. 
And I was like, oh, right on. And uh, he was like, yeah. And now he's working with Quentin Tarantino. And I was like, right, 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 right. Like, <laughs> you're, you've got a former student that's working with Quentin Tarantino. Like, you know, I didn't think he was lying, but I assumed that whoever he was talking to was probably full of shit. It was just, <laughs> it was just like too good of a story, you know? And then I come to find out <laughs> it's Fred Braskin. And, and Fred has worked with Quentin on a ton of movies. So that's how Fred and I knew each other. And then like years later, we ended up sitting next to each other at a premiere for uh fuck. What was it? It's Bone Tomahawk. Oh, Bone, Tom- Bone Tomahawk. Yeah. That is some serious small world after all bullshit. But if memory serves, actually, uh, we we had like a group chat uh, where, where we discussed the Dark Tower series. So yes. It all back to King. Yeah, that's true. Are you still in touch with Dr. Z? I'm off Facebook now, so. Yeah, I am. He, he, he sends his regards. Um, I, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work on three movies that have shot in Atlanta where he now lives. Um, so oh. I've gotten to see him over the years. Um, yeah, Fast Five, Guardians 2 and The Suicide Squad were all shot in Atlanta. Um, so it's, it's, it's been nice. Uh, I mean, this this most recent one. Uh, I had I had my kids with me, so my free time was a bit more limited. But the first couple of times I saw him a lot um, and it was really nice to catch up. What was your experience like like uh, with him as a as a student? I mean, part of my love of cinema, like like I owe part of it to my father and I, I owe part of it to him. He knew what my interests were mm-hmm. and had this massive VHS collection when I was in high school uh, that he shared with me. So I just watched a lot of classics thanks to him. Um, you know, as, as a teacher, he really encouraged me to write as much as possible and, and to read as much as possible and, and introduce me to some stuff that I would never have been, been introduced to otherwise. So yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's definitely one of a small handful of teachers who really had a tremendous impact on me. And I feel very fortunate to have had him. Good guy. Good guy. If, uh, Dr. Z, if you're you're listening to this, please reach out. I'd I'd love to, like to talk to you again. Just one last like epilogue to this story is that my senior thesis, the the year that I graduated high school, was it had to do with it was something about how Clive Barker and Stephen King both approached Lovecraftian stuff. I think that's what it was. And it was like something we'd been working on all semester. And you know, this this particular teacher, his his demands for like what he would accept as a paper were very rigid. You know, there was a, there was a format you had to follow and, and blah, blah, blah. Like I, I poured, I don't know how many hours into this fucking thing. And then I got kicked out of the school. I got kicked out of military school, like six weeks shy of graduation. And when I got back, I only had two classes that I needed to finish out to, um, to graduate. And one of them was senior English. And there was some other fucking thing. I don't, I don't remember what it was anyway. When I got there, you know, they they were most of the way through the semester and everyone else had been working on some other sort of paper and I wasn't going to have enough time to do it. So I talked to the teacher and the teacher agreed to let me turn in the paper that I had written uh, for like for Dr. Z when I was at military school and I turned it in and they accused me of fucking plagiarism (laughs) and said that I couldn't possibly have written it. You know, it was it was written at like such a level you know, and I'm not like blowing myself here. Like it was, you know, it's a high school student's paper, but compared to the papers they were getting for like people in that class, uh, it was apparently like light years beyond it. And, um, I'm, I'm man, that was curious. funny because I, I, I know when I was a student of his, one of his big things was do not use the word get. 
Yes, uh, I think I'm about sure that all the time. Out. Yep. <laughs> Every time I say got, I'm like, Dr. Z is somewhere frowning at me. Oh, he doesn't like this. But yes, you are uh, you are a film editor, and you have worked on some some truly amazing uh, films. I, I've been ridiculously fortunate. There is no question. Something that a lot of people don't take into consideration is your relationship with directors during the production of a film or the post-production of a film. Mm-hmm. There are very few people who spend as much time with the creative head, you know, of a, of a film than an editor, like script supervisor might be the, the other one. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like I say, even more than DP, you know, those are people that are sitting next to the director the entire time. And uh, I think Scott's right in that your, your profession's kind of the, unsung hero of, of the film business and that people don't really quite understand how much of what we see is, is shaped by the collaboration that you have with the people you work for. For sure. No, no one less than me. Um, I mean, <laughs> legitimately like, you know, I know what my relationship is with every individual filmmaker with whom I work, but I can't tell you how any other editor interacts with, with another filmmaker. It's, it's like a marriage. Um, uh, you know, you, who do you want to be stuck in a room with for eight to 12 hours every day for months on end? Like you really have to get along with that person. I, I have to assume that like you're looking at footage to a degree, like over and over and over and over again in such granular detail that it feels like whatever the final product is on any movie that you're working on, it must be impossible for you to watch that movie the same way other people watch the movie. No. Yeah, that is probably true. Um, I, like I try to, bec- when we do test screenings, I really try to just be an audience member, but you can't help but be aware of when moments that are intended to get reactions out of the audience are coming mm-hmm. up. Like you can't help but like prick your ears up and, and, and be like, okay, let's see how they're going to react. But it's not so much a case where you like get sick of the material. That, that has actually rarely happened for me, actually. The interesting thing about doing something like a test screening is you actually get to experience the movie through someone else's point of view Mm -hmm. Um, you you get like that's that's the new thing is to see how they're reacting and you know sometimes they're reacting in ways uh that you did not remotely expect and it's it's a real pleasant surprise um and other times you you're thinking oh this is this is going to get a great reaction and it gets crickets and it's like oh okay maybe we have some work to do here so how does it work practically like does does Tarantino march into a room with a bunch of footage and say, does he watch, uh, walk in with the, the coverage for the, uh, you know, the out of time sequence from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and say, okay, here's what I'm imagining for this. Go. And you got to cut it together? Or is it like, here's what I got. Do whatever you can with it. He is different from a lot of other filmmakers in, in, in that, uh, <laughs> obviously, but, um, yeah. but in, in that uh, he really doesn't enter the cutting room during production. Um, we'll, we screen Bailey's together on 35. He, he'll give me his notes, which honestly, for the most part are, are, I write down whatever he laughs at as we're watching dailies, <laughs> really horrifically violent stuff. Um, but, um, uh, I've seen some stuff with Quentin. That would be, be literally everything that, yeah. that, uh, <laughs> that runs. I've never seen, I've seen um, um, so many, I've seen hundreds of movies with Tarantino and I'll, I'll bring this up. I'm sure a little bit later, but, uh, uh, cause he ran a, a festival here in Austin called the QT fest and he would oh, yeah. screen his own 35 and 16 millimeter stuff but every once in a while he would run something of his and there's no feeling on earth like being in the theater with quentin tarantino watching a quentin tarantino movie and hearing the loudest laughter 
coming from <laughs> Quentin Tarantino. He <laughs> loves watching his movies. And it is such the antithesis of almost every other filmmaker I've ever known or seen, you know, premieres with or whatever. They're always like sitting in the back going, oh God, I hate this. I hate this feeling. I don't want other people to see it. I want everybody to see it, but I don't want other people to see it. That is not what Quentin Tarantino does. Oh no. <laughs> well, you talk about <laughs> like... <laughs> You know, that that guy loves movies like, you know, sometimes you'll find yourself like, you know, arguing with somebody on Twitter or in the comment section or something. And it's like, you know, the way I like movies isn't better or worse than the way you like movies. Like we both like movies equally. I believe Quentin Tarantino loves movies more than pretty much anybody. You know, I love movies, but I don't love movies like Quentin does. He's that man like lives and breathes film. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's remarkable. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I like to say, and it's not really a joke that when, when we, when we get into post and we're working together, our day is spent seventy percent focusing on the movie and thirty percent just talking about other movies. Um, yeah, <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell the people writing the checks, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but to uh, just to go back, as far as Quentin's concerned, he's put his heart and soul into the writing of the movie, and he puts his heart and soul into the directing of the movie. And truthfully, during production, he doesn't want to be distracted by post. He doesn't want me to show him a cut that he might have notes on and then have to get into giving me notes when he's trying to direct the movie. Literally, like there were only one or two times when he had to come into to the editing room during Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, for, for example, the uh, when Rick and Cliff are watching the FBI, um, we, we had to cut together that episode of the FBI. They shot the DiCaprio shots. The other shots were from the original episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we had to put it together and he had to make sure he was happy with it before they shot it on the TV um, because no, 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 nothing like that was going to be added in in post. Those are their actual reactions as they're watching it. Um, so, but that was the only time that he really had to come in. For the most part, he, like he separates the three stages of filmmaking, writing, directing, and, and, uh, and editing. Um, and so he really leaves me alone to, to do my thing, which is nice. I get to familiarize myself with the material and kind of can take as much time as I want and really feel like... I'm presenting him with the best possible version before he comes in and tells me just how much I fucked it up. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, have you ever like fucked something up like royally? uh, There've only been a couple of times where I've been like, how did I miss that? Like, uh, like when, when I look at his footage, it generally kind of like, you can, you can look at it and get a pretty good sense as to how it's intended to go together. And there Mm -hmm. was like a time where I was, where I just completely screwed it up. But, um, but no, for the most part, actually, because our senses of humor are are really in the same place, we generally are of a, a very similar mindset. And there have been a few occasions where, like, I have had an an out of the box idea um, that was exactly the same idea that he had. So it's 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 been a really good collaboration. Um, it's an absolute honor. The guy the guy's a legend. So um, I, I love working with him. So let's talk about. Your Stephen King origin story. You know what? Before we do that, just one yes. thing I want to say because because Scott, we've 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 had some communication prior to this, but Eric, this is the first time we're meeting, and I just want to tell you that your holiday gift guides are like like uh, you've saved me on more holiday seasons than I can <laughs> count. Like really essential reading. So I just want to thank you. Right. No, that that's uh, I think they're going to put that on my tombstone is, is uh, for anybody who didn't know me really before this podcast. Uh, I, I worked at a site for a very long time called Ain't It Cool News. And 
you know, I kind of cut my teeth on that side. I was in high school when I started writing for it in the mid to late 90s. And uh, yeah, I started up a holiday gift guide because I'd see like people running tech guides of this is the new DVD player or whatever. And it was kind of boring to me. And I'm like, there's so much geek stuff out there. Nobody's covering this stuff. The idea was like, I want to do it and I want to do it in a way that is like, gives you the feeling of that like Sears catalog you'd get when you were a kid where it was everything and you just flip through and you would circle what you want and give it to your grandparents or whatever. That That's how, how my Christmas spirit always started was getting that and circling what I'd wanted. But yeah, so I, I did that and that became like so popular that I've, I've done it every year, even since leaving the site. I left Ain't It Cool in 2017 and I've done one on my own site. I did one for Birth Movies Death last year, I, which was a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Figuring out, I, I think uh, my holiday gift guide about broke the back end of BMD. About uh, broke it. It broke it. <laughs> Fucking Eric, Eric was working on this thing all day and it was like, Hours and hours and hours were going by and he's like, you know, very carefully threading images and formatting it and doing little paragraphs. And then <laughs> like it, the BMD back end would crash if you loaded too many images into it, it turns out. <laughs> Apparently, I found the line many years into this yeah. the life of that site. I found the yeah. line and I believe the line was what, 39 or 40? 30, Something like that, 40. yeah. But what was what was amazing about that circumstance was... We got on a phone about it, and I was like, well, if you need to walk away and take a day to sort of compose yourself, because I understand this must be very frustrating, please do that. And Eric was just like, eh, no, I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just start it up again. And I was like, what? Like, what <laughs> fucking, what, what kind of human being are you? How are you not, like, erupting with rage? I would have been a volcano. And um, no, uh, to Eric's credit, he was he was very chill about it. Yeah, just in front of yeah. you though, Scott. Like after that was done, I went and like took a sledgehammer to the to, <laughs> uh, an old fax machine in my backyard. Oh, PC Lowbutter. So thank you very much for for that. I'm very proud of all the the many years I've done it. And but don't tell anybody. I don't think I'm doing it this year. Oh no, I think this is the first oh, year. Shit. A legit man, like it's either doing the king cast or doing that. Because when I do the gift guide, I have to focus on nothing but that for a solid month. We're talking seven day weeks. It it is that comprehensive. It's hundreds and hundreds of items and researching and linking and photos and you know. And honestly, I'm too busy with the podcast. Maybe we'll do a, a special episode in December. We do all uh, Stephen King related uh, gifts, gifts. We talk yes. about it on the air. Count yeah. me in. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Don't got to worry about a back end crashing when you're just doing audio. <laughs> That's true. So, Fred, uh, let's talk about your Stephen King origin story. How did Stephen King come into your life? So I grew up in a household with parents who were voracious readers mm -hmm. and did not have cable television. So literally my parents got cable um, my freshman year of college. I would be like on the school bus and I would hear all the kids talking about the movies that they were watching on cable um, that I would not have the opportunity to see. My parents did, they, they, they were early adopters of uh, a VHS VCR. Like I think we, we had one of those when I was in fourth grade, which I guess would have been like 1982. So I hear it heard all, like I distinctly remember hearing kids on, on the school bus talking about the, the uh, suicide by scissors scene in the dead zone. And being uh, like, well, this yeah. sounds horrifying. 
I like, like, I, I didn't like, I really got into horror when I was like 14, I want to say. Like, I bought my first issue of Fangoria magazine when, when, uh, it was like when Hellraiser was on the cover. But before then, I was, I was rather terrified of it. And so I think when I was in like fifth grade, I remember I had some, uh, some classmates who were reading King books. And I just distinctly remember like my mom had a copy of Firestarter on her nightstand. Um, and there, there were a few others, but I think what finally did it was my dad was, it was a big bridge player and he, he went to, he, he went away on a, 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 to a bridge tournament and he came back and you know, he would stay at a, at a hotel when, when he would do that. And, uh, and they had HBO. And so he watched this movie, Christine, and he came home and, uh, and he told me, all, they told me and my brothers all about it. And it sounded like, whoa, in terms of like capturing a child's imagination, the idea of a killer car, like actually really appealed to me. Um, and so I was really intrigued by that. But I was a little scared of horror movies. And so I thought, well, if I read the book, then I'll kind of be prepared for whatever the movie is going to throw at me. So, so I, I, I picked up a copy of the book from, from my local library and I, I read it and I couldn't put it down, but but I'm not a fast reader. Um, I think Eric, are, are you the one who I, sh- I have that in common with? Oh yeah, no, I'm a very slow reader. <laughs> so um, before I had finished it, um, my dad had gotten a friend of his at work to record the movie off of HBO, and he brought it in on, on a VHS. And, uh, and and I was like, I don't want to ruin the book for myself, but. I guess I, I really want to see this. <laughs> so, so I just broke down and, and watched it. Actually, that one is really interesting in terms of how much of the dialogue from the book is in the movie. Mm, yeah. um, like they, they, they just took huge sections of it and lifted it. And so I, like, I remember actually as I was watching the movie being like, oh, I just read the scene in the book and this is exactly the way it is, except they keep calling Keith Gordon pizza face, even though he has no zits at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, anyway, this, this this is why Scott, when when we were initially discussing this, it was a debate between Battleground and Christine because that movie, like, because it's a movie that my dad bought home on VHS, I probably watched it twenty times when I was a kid. Do you remember the? Sorry for the interjection, but do you remember the trailer for Christine? It's one of my all time favorite Stephen King trailers because it is. Uh, if you don't remember it, it's just like shapes against black and it's the narrator describing a beautiful woman essentially and you just see these curves uh-huh. you know and you're like you think it's a woman and then it's revealed that christine's the the beautiful you know right. the woman it is a beautiful beautiful uh trailer and it is I, but i love teasers that like i'm a huge fan of teaser trailers and teaser trailers aren't the mini versions of regular trailers like back in the day teaser trailers used to be right um things shot specifically for the trailer there's a very famous one for terminator 2 where Mm -hmm. it shows the skynet machinery making the the arnold new arnold terminator Mm -hmm. and uh i i love those and i miss them and and christina is one of the best ones and and it tricked you into wanting to fuck a car Trick tricked is uh is You're doing like, oh! a lot of lifting on that. <laughs> oh, John Carpenter, he's done it again. <laughs> uh. But yeah, Fred was deciding between those two, and I thought that <laughs> Battleground was the more interesting choice here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, one of the things <clears throat> I mean, I think when you mentioned this podcast to me, the first thing I said to you is, uh, you know, one of my favorite King adaptations is Battleground. And to, to go back to my origin story, after I read Christine, I, I think I then went into the dead zone um, just so I knew what everyone was talking about and then watched the movie 
actually that scene isn't actually in the book. But nope. uh, <laughs> but then I read Night Shift. Um, I'm going to say that this was all happening in around sixth grade for me. And uh, I remember after reading Night Shift, like on the school bus ride in, I, w- I would like talk to my friends on the bus. And I remember recounting a number of the stories, kind of just just retelling them um, because because I, I had fallen so in love with them. And, uh, and Battleground was one of them. That one, again, just the idea of like toy soldiers come to life completely captured my imagination as a, as a little kid. And so when this uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes episode aired, like I had no idea that this thing was happening. I just saw some commercial for it on TV and said, oh, I'll set that to, that to record. And I was completely blown away by this episode to the extent that like whenever anybody came over my house, I was like, you got an hour, you got to sit down and watch like the best solid hour of TV you're going to see all year. <laughs> Yeah, when you brought this up initially, like I knew it was I knew it was the more interesting choice than Christine, but it had also been like a long time since I had seen this episode. I knew William Hurt was in it. I knew the gist. I knew it was like this guy in an apartment, like fighting army toy soldier kind of dudes. But that's all I remembered about it. And so after we talked, I went and um, got a copy of the series and started working my way through it again. Man, it is it is a an incredible piece of work like it's by far the best episode of that anthology series that you know they did that nightmares and dreamscapes thing is sort of man it's sort of heartbreaking for me because nightmares and dreamscapes is maybe like my overall favorite king short story collection and i'm probably biased because it has crouch end and you know i'm crouch end <laughs> ride or die for life but it, it does not live up to the book at all but I, I do think the Battleground episode does. But oddly enough, you know, as you've already pointed out, that that story actually isn't from Nightmares and Dreamscapes. <laughs> but but what a piece of work. It may be the most accurate King adaptation ever. <laughs> I, it's I mean, very, very similar. Yeah. Look, I'll, 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 I'll be honest and say part of the decision making between Christine or Battleground is Battleground requires me to read a seven page story. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 350 page book like um, the amount of work that i have to put in is a lot less for battleground and i have kids and a job so yeah. you'll note that no guest so far has chosen the stand and i think that's uh <laughs> for a reason yeah weird that the the phone book uh king stuff hasn't been picked yet it or the stand or under the geez, dome i'm fucking i refuse to, if someone picks under the dome i swear to you i'm not rereading it and also i'm not watching the fucking series i'm going in with my memories and that's it. I'm not reliving that bullshit again. <laughs> but look, for anyone that's actually Fred, why don't you do the honors here? Can you can you explain to anyone who hasn't seen Battleground or hasn't picked up on the context clues that we've already dropped during this episode? What is Battleground about? What's the what's the plot? So Battleground is about a hired killer in the short story named John Renshaw in the filmed version named Jason Renshaw, fairly inexplicably. The the short story begins with him like arriving back home uh, after carrying out an assassination. In the show, they have wisely expanded upon it and actually show you the assassination. And one one of the really cool things that they do is is, uh, in the book, he just tells you, like King just tells you what a badass killer he is. Mm -hmm. Um, in in the show, they flesh it out and really, really do it accurately. Um, I, I, I got to give a, a shout out to Richard Christian Matheson, who wrote the screenplay. You know, obviously, his father wrote the episode of Trilogy of Terror that 
clearly there there are some cues taken from uh, the doll from trilogy of terror shows up in the the episode in there and and that i mean that is i mean they're they're connected like this is this is a spiritual successor to that no no question um but anyway sorry so 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 renshaw um uh, arrives home after uh, this assassination and, he, and he, he, a package has been left for him and he recognizes the handwriting on the package as being the same handwriting on a photo uh, that was in the uh, the office of the guy who he killed from his mother. So he recognizes the handwriting, thinks like this might be a bomb, but figures out a way to open it without setting it off. And it turns out that it is full of toy soldiers that are alive and mount a full-scale attack on uh, Renshaw. Yeah, the little green army men. Yeah. Uh, and it's also important to note that the guy that he killed was a toy maker. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, so, and in the in, in the show, the toy maker's played by Bruce Spence, is he not? Is the uh, He is. I from, fucking uh, Road Warrior. Yeah. Yeah, the oh, wow. the the gyro captain. Yep. Gyro. Yeah, he was Euro? The, Do you say gyro? Gy- no, gyro, I think. Gyro is that's gyro not a sandwich. Is, yeah, a gyro has lamb and shit in it. Like, like <laughs> right. He's not piloting a sandwich in the Road Warrior, but but yeah, that is that guy. And Mia Sarah is in it too. Yes, that yeah. to, to show to show just what a badass he is. He's sitting on a plane next to Sloan Peterson, and when she <laughs> tries to uh, to ask him something, he won't even take his headphones off. <laughs> you know what? Because you bring this moment up, I want to talk about this because I was watching it. Uh, I rewatched it again the other day in anticipation of this recording, and I don't think I really understand what's going on in that moment. Like she asks him for gum, I think mm-hmm. is what's happening. He pulls it out. He gives her the gum, but like. There's like a weird sort of moment there where they're just kind of staring each other down after she notices like the little hula girl in his bag. Maybe I'm a dumb motherfucker, but I, I could not understand like what what was that moment trying to communicate? You know, I, 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 I sort of assume there's an element of like she has noticed something illicit um like is he like is does he have to kill her now um but but it's it's not that over no it's a little it's a little hula girl doll like yeah i think it might be just as simple as um really underlying to the audience that this is going to be a visual story right because this 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 should be a conversation when we say she asked him for gum there's no dialogue spoken. This is yeah, all. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's no dialogue throughout it, the entirety, or is there? Is there a little something? There's I don't no dialogue. Like no. at the, at the airport, there was like an, you know, an announcement or anything. I don't remember that. Well, but, fair uh, enough. There might be diegetic, uh, but none of the main uh, characters dialogue. speak. Di- it, it, it's all, it, it's all dialogue free from the main characters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, and- it's really the stroke of genius about it. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys remember. So, sometime in the in the mid '90s, Marvel Comics did like a Nuff Said month where none mm-hmm. of their comics had dialogue. Um, like this is a spiritual successor to that. Um, <laughs> um, in general, I refer to this as a enough said episode of television, uh, <laughs> but I, but I think it's, it's really brilliant. Like that, that moment on the plane is actually the only one that I think really stands out um, as like, you're, you become aware of the conceit. Fair enough. To this episode's credit, like I, I saw it back when it aired or or back like I had seen it years ago. I forget the circumstances now, but I had no recollection of it being completely free of dialogue. And so when I rewatched it, when Fred, when you and I first started talking about this a couple of months ago, I went and revisited it and was 
sort of shocked by that. Like it's so successful in communicating everything it needs to communicate that the fact that it is dialogue free was like not one of my memories about it. And that's one of the most interesting things about it. I feel like that's a sign that it's uh, it's a successful piece of filmmaking. So smart because by taking the dialogue out of it from a screenwriting standpoint, it frees up uh, Richard Christian Matheson to just tell the story where you don't have to mm-hmm. have that scene where the, cause it's mostly a one care, one actor, one character thing, right? So he has nobody to talk to. So he, so it frees him up from like doing the thing of looking in the mirror and talking to himself and like, you're not going crazy. Things are happening. This is all, yeah. I mean, all that stuff is out the window now. Now, you know, this character himself, he's a man of action he sees the threat. He doesn't have that whole like, oh my God, this is stupid that their little green army men are shooting real guns and, and it's hurting and, you know, and blowing up my apartment with, you know, their little tanks and, and all this stuff. He doesn't have that whole moment. He just goes, okay, this is what this situation is. And now I'm going to deal with it. And that's what makes it so engaging is that you don't have that extraneous dialogue of, of him having to talk himself through the, the strange circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Also, I think it allowed Brian Henson to just direct the hell out of it. Part of like being free of dialogue allowed him to just tell the story completely visually. There are shots, you know, I, I watched this when it first aired, that shot that like, where we're, we're like, we're alongside the helicopter and then we move in behind the guys flying the helicopter and we're seeing through the window, the, through the windshield. Like, I remembered that from when I initially saw it, like it stuck with me that much. It's really impressive. I don't know what the budget of this was or how long they had to shoot it. Um, like I say, I, I, th- I think it's one of the best hours of television I've ever seen. <laughs> and it's really interesting that there's like a legacy thing going on here where Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son, directed and Richard Christian Matheson, Richard Matheson's son, wrote it. I don't have anything to add to that, really, except that it's a really cool thing. There's like a, a torch being passed here to some degree. Well, and it's both of them flexing their their talent yeah. and getting the show like, hey, we can do this too. You know, we're not just our father's kids. Like we we are our own visionaries here. Like we can actually, you know, make our own stamp here. Really Here's- impressively so. And and you know, as I mentioned, we we get we get the Zuni fetish doll from uh, from Trilogy of Terror, which is a really nice callback to his dad's work. Although you'll note that it has the. Um, have, have you guys seen Trilogy of Terror? Oh yeah, of course. I I I, I, I. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and its sequel uh, oh, I, I, did, I, I remember re- renting the sequel and going oh this this is uh doo-doo caca <laughs> <laughs> though, though it, it is bizarre that you know they sequelize that specific story like the one that starts like the, ne- the the following morning and basically just remakes the whole thing um, yep. <laughs> but, um but i like that the uh the, the the chain is still around its waist so it hasn't come to life yet Here's the thing I didn't know until about 30 seconds ago, but did you know that Brian Henson did the voice of Hoggle in Labyrinth? I don't think I did. Yeah, I, I seem to remember looking looking that up at some point. Yeah. You were looking up the voice of Hoggle in Labyrinth? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I love Labyrinth and, you know, I was watching a bunch of, I think whenever all the, the, the first DVD or something came out, there was a bunch of behind the scenes stuff on it. I Man, I had, I had no idea. I looked him up because I... The direction in Battleground is so strong that you're like, why isn't this guy working all the time? Uh-huh. Oh, also, he was the ho- the voice of Pumpkinhead in Return to Oz. What the fuck? <laughs> anyway, he's done some he's done some uh, TV stuff, but as far as I can tell, his only feature is uh, the Happy Time Murders. Yep, 
It's interesting when, when I, um, I, I want to say a, a few months after this episode aired, Craig Zoller, uh, who, who was my, my college roommate, uh, came to, uh, came to LA. Wait, and- what? S. Craig Zoller is your college roommate? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what that's the fuck. I had no idea. Well, that's weird. All right, go ahead though. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I showed him Battleground. That instantly, be- like Brian Henson, instantly became a name that he was like said to his agent, like get my scripts to this guy. <laughs> like so, yeah. so. I don't know why more hasn't come from him because I mean this episode is exceptional and like fairly unflinching. Like the helicopters chopping his hand up, like mm-hmm. like there's, yeah. there's, there's some rough stuff in this. The gore crazy. effects are really good. Like it, they it looks like slashed flesh. Mm-hmm. I noted I noted that on this last rewatch I did where you know it chops up his hand and then he's like running it under the the faucet mm-hmm. and there's there's dimensions to the cuts on his hand. Of course, it's not like a fucking just a red line on his hand. You know, this isn't like, you know, a a high school production or something. But it looks convincing. Like it's it's a convincing sort of gore. And in fact, now that we're talking about that, are the are the army guys in this mo capped or is that all CGI? Like there were moments where I honestly couldn't tell. So if I were to hazard a guess, and I, 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 again, I don't know. I like, (laughs) did either of you actually research this? There's hardly anything to be researched about this. Like I I looked into this and I couldn't find up like anything about it. So I'm pretty sure that they shot actual people with rubber masks and rubber clothing, but they angled the shutter um, so that it would, it would have that stop motion feeling. Um, Oh, so there wouldn't be motion blur. Um, and it would feel like they're, they're like they're actually kind of leaning into how it would have been done back in like the sixties. Yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure. That's what it looks like to me. It's it's really impressive. Like, yeah, I, it's I mean, super impressive. Yeah. I think they shot it a little bit like um, I don't know if you guys have seen the gate, but yeah. like all the little demons in the gate, there there are some stop motion things, but most of it are just people in suits, and the camera is like fucking forty feet away, right, shooting them, so they're very small in the in the frame, and then they they comp that into the shot of you know a regular person. We need to try to track down Brian Henson and see if we can't uh, get him to talk about this shit on the show sometime. Yeah, um, I would love that, and I'm intrigued but, by Fred's idea about the rubber clothes because that makes me think of um, yeah. Primus's why known as Big Brown Beaver video, like that that like liquid television sort of like mid nineties. Yeah, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Those like rubber guys, the yeah, like yeah. the cowboys, the boys. I don't have anything else to add to that thought. It just reminded <laughs> me of it. See, um, I'd say one of the interesting things to me about the uh, adaptation is the escalation that is going on, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's one of the things that is really stand out about it because it's especially with uh being dialogue free you you have to keep the momentum of of the storytelling going or else you're going to be floundering like it's real easy to uh you know to to get bored with something and and kind of disconnect it so what they do here is they pull you along where they very smartly whenever he gets home we see the floor plan essentially we get a walk around his apartment mm-hmm. so we know what his apartment looks like we know where the bathroom is we know where the outdoor swimming pool thing that he has that it's an outdoor indoor pool you know and like all this stuff is established right off the top so whenever the shit goes down 
you know what the geometry is, which is very smart. But then like it starts off with little guys shooting regular little guns that he's like Godzilla, right? Where it's just like, oh, you know, cut it out kind of things. And then the fucking artillery comes out, which is harder and it's blowing holes in doors and stuff. And then the helicopters come out and that's crazier, you know, and it just has this escalation until finally we get to this like fucking little Rambo, right? (laughs) And so there's like a little green guy Rambo that is uh, fucking him up big time, even though he's still just a little green toy, but he's like the berserker of all the, the toys. I talk about um, how accurate a uh, an adaptation it is, but like that's the point where like they went one further than where the story yeah. goes. Um, mm-hmm. and a way to tie it into the ending, and I mean I think that was really brilliant. The the, the, right. the commando slash nuclear weapon. Yep. I feel like if I were in an apartment, like if this were me in this very, very spacious and luxurious apartment, I mean, the setting doesn't matter. If I were in an enclosed space with some army guys, I understand that William Hurt is playing like a badass hitman in this, and we have to accept that as, as canon. And yet, I feel like I would fuck these guys up. Like I would stomp on them. I would throw things at them. I would pick he up. Does. A, he does, but I feel like I might be better at it. Is all <laughs> I'm saying. Like, do you really honestly believe like if you were attacked by a box full of army men, you would lose? And uh, I understand that's the I understand that's nuclear the, weapons on them. Yeah, I, th- I think so. <laughs> I know. Well, I that's mean, why you fucking stomp them out before they use the nukes. Well, I feel Come very on. confident that I would be dead. <laughs> really? <laughs> You don't think you could you don't no, think you could persevere in the face of a bucket of army men? Like, come on. Man. I don't think I'm taking a rocket launcher in the knee and uh <laughs> and, and coming out of that too well. <laughs> I think I could do it. I think I would be like a real baby about it and probably cry. But I still think like, look, man, like I'm scared of spiders. You know, I'm very, very scared of spiders. But if uh if I see like a sizable spider coming towards me. Like outside, like we're in Texas. There's fucking snakes and scorpions and all kinds of weird shit around here. If I see a spider like coming at me, I'll stomp on it. You know, I don't want to kill any of God's creatures, obviously. And, you know, I'm a big animal lover, but spiders cross a line for me. I won't fuck with that. And I feel like a spider is basically the same thing as a little army man. (laughs) <laughs> but if there were 20 spiders and they had artillery and rocket launchers, then I'd be tap dancing on these motherfuckers. <laughs> I'd be done with it. Look, their their guns shoot the the bullets must be tiny like slivers, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't like they wouldn't hurt like uh like BBs or something. The second I'm catching a few of those to the shin, I'm like I'm done with you. And I I think I would bah, 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 I think I would take them out. I'm but not scared you're, of the you're army. You're assuming that they would all be in one spot because that's the thing here is they they had little squadrons that were doing they were had army tactics. Imagine you were facing off against spiders that had like military grade training because that's what you're this suggesting. Is. And, and what you're suggesting is that I might be outwitted by a number of yes. spiders, and I do not think that I could be. Nor do I think I could be outwitted by a number of uh, army men. I think <laughs> I would take them out. Listen, I don't know. I, like Stephen King has written a lot of scary shit. He's imagined these like, you know, a number of like nightmarish or, or fantasy scenarios. Most of them I'm like, yeah, I would be fucked in this scenario. I don't think I'd be fucked in this one. I think I got this one. That's all I'm saying. Well, 
Here's the thing is I think that your confidence would be your downfall though. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Because you would be so sure it's like, okay, these guys, oh, whatever, you're going to shoot me with these little things. And then suddenly the rocket launcher takes out your knee and you're on the ground. And you're like, wait, okay. when the fuck well, did this happen? All right. Well, you know, I, and then then I, then the tanks come out and then the you start getting shelled, these little mini shells, but they're big enough to like blow holes in doors and stuff. So, you know, I, I think that that uh, you might not take the situation seriously at first, and that would be your downfall. Uh-huh. And I think what you're underestimating is my ability to panic in a situation like this. <laughs> right. And if I'm panicking, listen, I'm in my home office right now, right? If the door suddenly like, like opened up a little bit and these things started streaming in, I would immediately stand up in a panic because I would be alarmed to see like this weird shit. And in in a truly American sense, I would just stomp first and ask questions later. They wouldn't even get as far as the tanks and the helicopters. I would fuck these guys up. That's that, that's that's all I'm trying to communicate. Yeah, I, I'm I, not again, assuming that assuming that they're all just showing like lining up and waving at you before they get into their big tanks and helicopters <laughs> and stuff. Which, yeah, I'm just not. I don't. Not, I don't think that they would be doing. I think you'd I, be getting attacked on multiple fronts. I'm not scared I, 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 of this. In 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 Renshaw's defense, I think he's pretty resourceful. Like when he takes the towel and puts the chopper in the towel and smashes it into the toilet. Yeah, that's like, that's good know, shit. That's which, good which, shit. I mean, it's really like, yeah, shit. That's 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 what I would like to think I would do if I was able to have some presence of mind in that situation. You can tell. In it's funny you bring that up because I was thinking about that scene in particular when I was watching it. Like when he when he traps them in the toilet. The camera, you don't get an angle on the toilet until the very end, until after he's, like, crushed them. And what I was thinking was, like, they must have had a shot planned there where it was, like, the army guys in a giant toilet bowl sort of struggling against the current of a flush toilet. Like, my head cannon for this episode is, like, they probably had that shot in there and they they couldn't afford it. Or they you, you think he uh, he left a floater? So they, they were, like, cleaning <laughs> yeah. Well, he's been out to of town. Turn. He's been out of town. I assume someone's right. been there and cleaned it or, you know, he flushed before he left. But. I don't know. In in our in this bizarre Honey, I Shrunk the Kids uh, scenario, <laughs> that is a line that hasn't been crossed yet. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> there, there is a part of me also that wonders if that like helicopter in the towel idea is a bit of a nod to Phantasm. Mm, uh, the, probably. Uh, you know, the, the bug in the in the shirt <laughs> right there's there's a lot of like nods to other shit in here like you know there's a shot of william hurt in the pool that's straight out of apocalypse now which oh, yeah. i'm i'm certain is is intentional mm-hmm. for sure given the fact that i think we're probably talking about the title that is the least seen by your audience um, all right hope, hopefully we've we've convinced a few people to watch it this is another selling point for me on this episode is oh yeah you know, you can see this episode on YouTube. I, I looked it up. And if people have not seen it or are not aware of it, like, I, I hope that they they seek it out. You know, if the if the point of this show is to sort of cover all our bases and all the fucking Stephen King adaptations, of which there are 17,000 at last <laughs> I count, we got to do this one eventually. And if we can put eyeballs on this one in particular, like, I'm I'm proud of that. Oh, yeah. That was a selling point for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's legit. It's legit good. Like, it's not one of those like, oh, it, not enough people have seen it. It's worth watching. This is like a legit good hour, not not just of TV, but an hour of storytelling. It is super fun, very inventive. 
uh, you know, it has a great, like almost tales from the crypty ending, you know, the, where there's just that little extra twist to it. And this doesn't work if you don't have somebody like William Hurt in that role. So you have like an A-list actor essentially doing this one man show in this ridiculous situation and you just eat it up. Yeah. And totally selling it without dialogue. <laughs> like It's mostly grunts and screams. Well, yeah. you need an you need an actor of that caliber to fucking pull that off, you know. That's a hard thing to accomplish. Imagine how easy it would have been to adapt this and you know put some put some tough guy dialogue in there and mm-hmm. you know have him have a little showdown with the fucking toy company executive guy who pilots a sandwich. Like if <laughs> there's all manner of uh, opportunities to to invest this thing with dialogue and the, the restraint shown is, is so admirable. I, I also, I, I want to mention, I really love like the, the assassination that opens the episode. Like yeah. the plan is great. Like the cell phone counting down, this is a bomb. Like the way he uses that to like get the security guard out. Like, like it's really well thought out. Like these guys really did a great job with it. Well, do y'all have anything else you want to, you want to add here? Uh, well, I think this would be a good time. Like, uh, I haven't heard this story, but, uh, Fred let us know that, uh, oh, yes, he might yes, have yes, a, yes. a follow up to, or his own personal version of, uh, uh, of an embarrassing Kurt Russell story, which is going to be a thread, uh, that we hope to continue on here. Started by Mike Flanagan, continuing with Fred, and hopefully we will get many, many further embarrassing Kurt Russell encounter stories as we go. <laughs> I would, I would love it if we could foster a community of people who have humiliated themselves in front of Kurt Russell. <laughs> well, well, I don't think this is that bad, but, but it is a pretty good story. Um, when we were shooting the hateful eight in Telluride, we built a screening room um, so that we could screen our, uh, our, our 70 millimeter dailies. And on the weekends, Quentin would do would host movie screenings and like the whole casting crew would come um, one weekend. He decided to, to screen uh, De Palma's Carrie and literally a minute before the screening was to begin. Uh, Shannon McIntosh, uh, Quentin's producer, came to me and said, Quentin's not going to be able to show up tonight, but he asked you to introduce the movie. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, OK, so. I say the first thing that comes to my head, which is uh, the, the story about like Stephen King um, having been told what they were going to do for the uh, the ending and still having the bejesus scared out of him um, mm-hmm. when, when it happened. And then we, we proceed to uh, to watch the movie. The movie ends and Kurt Russell is uh, as, as he as he often does is he's holding court and he's talking about William Catt. And he's like, I don't know what happened to that guy. Like, look, look, he's so charismatic and so handsome. And look at that hair. And, uh, uh, and, and, you know, he did that greatest American hero TV show. And that's kind of all anyone knows him for. Like, it's, it's really surprising. And I, then I have, I realize, like, as he's saying this, this, the thing that I should have said to introduce it, which is that, as you may be aware, the Carrie and Star Wars auditions happened mm-hmm. at the same time. And so there is actually a tape of Kurt Russell and William Catt auditioning for the roles of Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. (laughs) (laughs) So so he's literally singing his praises. And I I, I actually, I said to him, 
I think I've seen video of you guys auditioning for Star Wars together. He's like, oh, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> and, and it's funny because, like, you do, obviously, Harrison Ford is iconic in the role of Han Solo. But if there's one other actor who you could imagine in that role, it's Kurt Russell. Having said that, this was kind of like Disney Kurt Russell. This is well pre snake yep. plissy. Computer wore tennis shoes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, so I dropped the ball in uh, in, in my storytelling, but um, now I've told it, it before. It's <laughs> not. That's uh, honestly, that's not quite as humiliating as uh, Flanagan's story. Uh, Flanagan <laughs> right. remains the most humiliated in front of Kurt Russell, but uh, you're coming in at a strong number two, and we'll <laughs> we'll continue to to build this out. You know, hopefully, we'll eventually we'll have a number of guests who've been disgraced in front of Captain Ron. <laughs> God, <laughs> you know, I, one other thing that I wanted to mention, um, which I think kind of ties into my Stephen King origin story, is that in the first part of 1994, I was an editorial intern at Fangoria magazine. Never heard of it. <laughs> no <Exactly>. shit. <laughs> this is this is back back in the heyday of Tony Timponi and Mike 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 Gengold. Um, right. And uh, sorry, those guys I'm, are both legends, <laughs> by the way. Indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a real honor to, to, to get to work on that staff. Um, and one of one of my uh, my big assignments was uh, was captioning photographs. And so I was working there when the stand miniseries was happening. You know, I, I, I put a lot of work into the captions that I wrote, but none more so than for the stand. Um, like this was like there was nothing I was more excited for. I mean, I spent hours on that and like i could not have been more proud when uh, uh there, there was a, an issue of fango that had like a smiling corpse um on on the uh, it was like in in the the upper left hand corner and i it was like stephen king's the stand smile the world is ending that was me i was i was really really <laughs> <laughs> that's good what are you working on i already know the answer to this question i'm going to ask it anyway what are you working on right now what's James next Guns suicide squad um how does it look uh, it's it's awesome. It, it, it yeah, is. What's he gonna say, Scott? Man, I don't know. I don't think well, it's coming together. It's fucking, <laughs> a, it's a huge pile of trash, dude. I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, it's gonna know, end uh, careers. <laughs> well, actually, let me ask you a more specific question. Then we just had Steve Agee on the show. He plays King mm-hmm. Shark in it. Yep. How's King Shark looking? Like that looks to be like the the Groot. Of of this this thing now, or or is he more the Drax? He's he's a far more violent group. I mean, this is this is a hard R. I, I, I'm I'm going to say that this movie is uh, really harkens back to like the heyday of Paul Verhoeven. What <laughs> really? If if people are going to be taking their kids to the new movie from the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, um, they they may be horrified. But, um, but uh, but their kids are going to have a blast. Um, it's, uh, it's so there's big. so you don't think there's any way this thing is getting a PG thirteen. I mean, you know, I, I need to knock on something because this will ensure that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that the studio says, "Hey, here's how we can make more money." But it certainly was not designed that way. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it, it's it's what uh, if, it's a blast. What if Zack Snyder wants to do his own cut? Uh, <laughs> oh, fucking Christ. <laughs> Uh, no, but, but for serious, I know, um, uh, I know James a little bit for serious, yo, uh, Hey Hey guys, seriously, let's bring this back. Uh, I know, I know James a little bit and, uh, he has been 
over the moon about this from the screenwriting stage on like everything that he's been saying publicly about this is the best time he's ever had making a movie that's not him saying that publicly and then bitching privately like he's he is so over the moon with with this whole thing and uh like i don't know anything specific about it like literally watching that dc fandom thing was the first time i really mm-hmm. you know had any idea, you know the kind of tone or anything that they were making but uh from what i've heard like this is fully unrestrained james gunn oh yeah zany i mean I, but i feel like we got unrestrained james gunn prior to guardians of the galaxy with like slither and, and super and when he did guardians like it kind of forced him to have to like focus, like not go too far out of bounds. He he is unrestrained here, but I think he's taken the lessons of the Guardians movie with him. It's an interesting yeah. thing. Um, it's not quite I, I don't, what he's going to expect. I don't mean like Tromeo and Juliet, <laughs> you know, James Gunn. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, just this is his his uh, point of view within the blockbuster system. Even yeah, yeah, Sli- yeah. even like Slither, James Gunn though, I think would there's like a, an entire generation I think of movie watchers that probably only know James Gunn because of Guardians of the Galaxy, like people that are just hyper focused on superhero shit and have not really delved into his previous filmography, which. For real, like super, I I fucking love super. And Slither is also like, Slither is gnarly as shit. So if he's bringing that gnarliness to, you know, what he learned on Guardians, that's, talk about a perfect marriage. I'm I'm fucking hyped for that. I I suspect you guys are going to dig it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and I I was, uh, I was the apprentice editor on Tromeo and Juliet. That's actually where I met James. So yeah, it's, uh, (laughs) again, I've, I've been ridiculously fortunate in my career. Thank you so much for, for joining us. This was awesome. And uh, I can't believe we filled an hour on (laughs) (laughs) longer than the episode. (laughs) Yeah, this was great. But thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. It is my honor. Long days and pleasant nights. Many thanks to Fred Raskin for joining us for that uh, episode. It's it's really interesting to me, Scott. Going into this whole thing, we knew that we were going to be covering the big classics and some obscure stuff, but it, it always is great whenever you can find something that totally passed you by. Like, I don't think I ever saw this, this episode of Battleground before this. And now it's my go-to answer whenever somebody asks me about what are the best, like, underseen Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, totally. Totally. I just, I just love doing the niche title stuff. We've talked about this before, but we thought early on, like, well, we're going to have to deal with everyone picking The Shining. First of all, we have not. Very few people have picked The Shining or attempted to. A lot of people have gravitated to more uh, niche titles. And thank God for that, because I think like even as a fan of a lot of the bigger ones, I've also like just over the course of my life sort of run out of things to say about them. When else am I going to get an hour to talk about Battleground? It's fucking rad. And uh, Fred was an excellent guest. Loved having him on and cannot wait to see uh, Suicide Squad when that drops later in the year. Hell yeah. It's uh, funny that you mentioned everybody picking The Shining, because guess what? That's actually our <laughs> our topic next week. Our title next week, next Wednesday's main feed show, is going to be The Shining, but with a focus on the miniseries. So we are taking a, a dive into the 90s miniseries version of The Shining. The Shining asterisk miniseries version. <laughs> right. Our guest for this episode is a, how can I tease this? A singer-songwriter of some renown. Somebody who has a uh, bit of a spooky vibe to them, I would say. 
And is it Alice Cooper? No, no, he said no. Uh, apparently, he's a Clyde Barker guy, uh, which makes yeah, okay. sense. I, that I, tracks. I, we should have known that, but um, it's and it's not Marilyn Manson. Just in case anyone thinks that's who I'm describing, uh, definitely not Marilyn Manson. But um, yeah, it's a good episode. Uh, we finally tackle the other Shining. I think that's all I want to say about it at this juncture. Probably already said too much. And in the meantime, this Friday, we have a bonus episode on our Patreon. It's our commentary for this month. We are going into the 1990 film Graveyard Shift, Mm -hmm. uh, and we are doing it with a great guest. Do you want to fill them in and who's joining us for that, that commentary? Yeah, Ben Meckler is our guest on this episode. You, If you're a, a Twitter user, you probably know Ben from his elaborate, long-running practical joke in which he uh, tricks movie blogs and Hollywood trades into running his reviews of things that he has not actually seen yet. He's also the man behind Kipo and the Age of the Wonder Beasts, which is a really awesome uh, Netflix series that you can watch right now if you'd like to. Uh, very funny guy. And Graveyard Shift is kind of a film that's perfect for the way we do commentaries, which is, generally speaking, us just kind of, it's like three people sitting around and and uh, watching the movie in hopefully as entertaining a way as possible. In order to hear that, you're going to want to sign up for the KingCast Patreon. That's at patreon.com backslash the KingCast. And uh, while you're doing that, maybe stop by iTunes, leave us a review, tell us how much you enjoy the show. Please do not tell us if you do not enjoy the show. And um, follow us on Twitter at at KingCast19 if you are not already. Yep, I think that about does it. You got anything else to add? Yeah, actually, I do. I want to say that Eric and I spent this morning sort of plotting out the next few months of the show. And February is going to be a real ass kicker, folks. Get hyped for that. Yeah, lots of good stuff coming up. And uh, yeah, in the meantime, we got our Graveyard Shift commentary on Friday on Patreon. And next Wednesday, we will be tackling the Shining miniseries. So we'll see you guys then. See you, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. 